0: Welcome to the Game Changers podcast, where we connect trending, evidence-based pharmacotherapy to your pharmacy and medicine practice. Let's listen in as pharmacist Jeff Wall talks about the effectiveness of adding acetazolamide to loop diuretics in order to decongest hospitalized patients with heart failure exacerbation. Hello, and welcome to Game Changers, Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, professor of pharmacy practice at Drake University. Um, how you doing? Hope things are going well in your neck of the woods. And uh, as uh, we're approaching fall, at least in, in, our, in my hemisphere, <laughs> um, hope that you're getting some good weather and get some nice nice things and nice times to go outside, stuff like that. If you're a new listener, welcome. We aim to be the uh, pharmacotherapy uh, podcast out there. So if you want to know something about the latest medications to treat, the latest things released by the FDA, you know, new guidelines, Oh, you know, you know, basically just some updates. That's what we're here for. And we try and give you the le- latest evidence based information that you can really make actionable, that you can really, you know, put into your practice, whether you be a provider or a pharmacist, which we, we aim to please both. So um, uh, welcome to Game Changers. If you are a new listener and you like what you hear, please hit that like button and subscribe where you get your podcasts. Um, but most importantly, uh, for all listeners, if you can head over to CEImpact.com and take a to look at some of the great CE programs they have, including CE for this. Uh, podcast where just listening to me blather on for 20 minutes and or 30 minutes and uh, answering a few simple ce questions but a bing you get yourself a little bit of ce and you get back and rapidly build up over time so uh, uh, um, definitely check that out so today i'm excited because we're talking about a paper that is is literally hot off the press was only published about two weeks ago in the New England Journal of Medicine, taking a look at the use of acetazolamide to improve diuresis in patients admitted with heart failure. And this is something a little bit near and dear to my heart because it's something we've been doing in my ICU for at least 10 years. And we've had good luck with it over the years, uh, but there's not been a ton of, of really good randomized control trial data on it. So it was, it, was, it, it uh, no pun intended, did my heart good to, to see this this uh, paper being published. So um, anyway, so they are talking a little bit about about the study itself, you know, again, most providers out there, and I think, you know, many inpatient pharmacists are well aware of the fact that intravenous loop diuretics are, are the mainstay of therapy to treat uh, heart failure exacerbations in the US. In other countries, they also use, you know, vasodilators and stuff like that. But, but really in the US, our, you know, our, our biggest weapon uh, against uh, heart failure exacerbations that require hospitalization is intravenous loop diuretics. And having been a hospital pharmacist for a long, long time, I can tell you that that's one of the most frustrating things that I see is, you know, giving patients IV diuretics and it just doesn't work right they're not really you know uh, urinating enough and we don't get enough fluid out of them to really get where we want to be and sometimes it extends their hospitalization and stuff like that and the authors of this paper in their introduction kind of note that as well that, that there's that that isn't just me noticing that that in fact many patients are discharged from the hospital with residual fluid overload and 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 so you know yes their shortness of breath is maybe better and their edema is a little bit better you know and all that but they still are weighed up. They still have their body weight is higher than than, than their dry weight. Um, and many of them have more than just say trace edema. A couple of studies have looked at this, including the adhere registry, which is a national registry in the United States looking at outcomes in heart failure, and found about 20% of patients were discharged from the hospital with signs of fluid overload, including increase in body weight. So you know we we probably don't do as good a job as we should when we when we talk about trying to use diuresis as our main goal and, and main weapon in, in treating heart failure. Um, I can tell you that for many, many years, as someone who works with 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 residents and and uh, other other learners, that there's a lot of myths about the use of IV diuretics and approaches, and and it's one of the things. It's actually one of the first lectures I give my pharmacy students uh, when they start rotating with me is is the appropriate use of diuretics. And you know, just to, just as a quick reminder to everybody, remember that that loop diuretics operate on a sigmoid shaped curve, right? So they so there's a those threshold that you need to achieve to, to achieve a significant naturesis, and a significant diuresis, and if you get give doses below that threshold dose, with what the, with the nephrologists call the light switch dose, uh, you don't get anything. And if you give doses above that light switch dose, you don't really get that much more than just hitting the light switch. And so, you know, because of that, the most effective way to use intravenous diuretics, of course, is to find that light switch dose. And if you want to aggressively diurese somebody, diurese them, use that diuretic dose more frequently. And that's kind of what they did in the study, which I I thought was good. The other thing that I see continuously on my services is, you know, we give, you know, 40 milligrams of furosemide to somebody IV, and we say, well, if they don't don't pee and then you know, if they don't pee today, we'll give them another 40 tomorrow. And it's like, I always am, I'm forever telling my residents, intravenous loop diuretics are going to work in somebody they are going to work in the first couple of hours. I know there's, you know, there's been some uh, discussion. You know, I was always taught that, you know, the trade name of furosemide is Lasix, and that's because it lasts six hours in the body. I understand that there's a, there's some some controversy about that now, whether it's an urban legend or is actually true. Um, one of these days, I'm going to have to, if I ever have time, I'm going to have to go downstairs to the uh, a library and dig through some of the old main medical journals in the 19th 70s when Lasix first came out to see if that's actually true or not, but uh, you know the, you know if you know time is money uh, and and it's also you know you know every hour they spend uh, patients spend in the hospital something bad can happen to them, and so if you don't get good diuresis in that first couple of hours, you know I say hey give them another higher dose in the afternoon and see if we can get them to urinate because that's really what you're trying to do. Now, obviously, in an outpatient basis, you don't want to give diuretics in the evening because you don't want your patients up all day. But in the hospital, where you almost always have Foley catheters in these patients, uh, it's okay to give them an afternoon dose. So, so, you know, again, bottom line is that, is that there's, there's lots of, of myths about IV diuretics and approaches to them use. But one of the things we do talk about with, with IV diure- diuresis is using more than one type. And so if loop diuretics don't work, do we sometimes add thiazide diuretics in the United States? That means metolazone often. Um, and that can get a pretty profound diuresis. And, and another uh, diuretic is acetazolamide or diamox. And it actually was one of the first non-mercurial diuretics to come out in the 1960s. So I mean, really it it is the OG, uh, if you will, uh, diuretic. Um, The reason we don't use it much anymore is that it is not as effective uh, by itself, um, uh, if, if when added to loop diuretics, it can theoretically increase diuresis. But it was never a very good diuretic by itself, and because it's a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor, it has some weird side effects, most notably uh, metabolic acidosis, especially at higher doses. So, the authors of this study that we're going to talk about today note all of that, and they, and they do a very good job in their introduction, kind of discussing that you know there is some small studies suggesting that adding acetazolamide to loop diuretics can improve uh, um, uh, diuresis, and they more facilitating. And decongestion, and they, they use that term, again, in my world, when I think decongestion, I think somebody who's, whose nose is stuffed up, but they use decongestion throughout this paper to denote getting rid of water or excess fluid in patients, basically. They note that there's been several observ- observational and uh, studies that have suggested, again, that adding acetazolamide at a dose of 500 milligrams once daily IV to intravenous loop diuretic therapy increases urinary sodium excretion um, and diuresis, and, and, and I've found that Pretty significantly, in my ICU, and particularly when we're aggressively diuresing patients, and we often are aggressively diuresing patients, uh, we've used it uh, some for that, but mostly when we've when we've uh, caused a contraction alkalosis in these patients. Um, You know, and pulmonologists listening, uh, they will tell you that one of the things they really don't like in their ICU patients is is alkalosis, because when you have an alkalosis, that that basically shuts down the signal in your brain to breathe, and we want people to breathe more and harder and faster, usually in uh, in an ICU setting. And so my uh, intensivists for many years, you know, have wanted to be aggressive about compensating for the, the contraction alkalosis that occurs. And again, so when you add acetazolamide to that, not only do you get uh, some extra diuresis, but you also help reverse the, the metabolic alkalosis because of the side effect, basically. So that's where I've seen this used, um, but not so much on the floors as just an additive to, to a loop diuretics. So that's where the study comes in. The ADVOR study, which stands for acetazolamide, in can decompensated heart failure with fluid over. Overload, um, they basically examined this, this notion that adding a single dose of acetazolamide to standardized IV loop diuretic therapy would improve uh, successful decongestion, again, that, again, using that term. It was a multi-center randomized parallel group double-blind placebo-controlled study. It did not have industry involvement, which makes sense Who? What, what drug company would ever pay for these drugs that have been generic for years and years. The inclusion criteria that adult patients were admitted to the hospital because of acute decompensated heart failure and had at least one sign of volume overload. And, and so they either had uh, significant edema on physical exam, they had pleural effusion on imaging, or they had ascites, um, either by physical exam or imaging, all signs of, of significant fluid overloaded. They also used some labs. And so they used uh, a brain natriuretic peptide. And they either used they used the two that are commonly used, I think, in the Western world, uh, NT pro BMP levels that had to be greater than 1000 picograms per millimeter, or B type natriuretic peptide levels of greater than 250, which is what we use in my hospital is we don't use the NT pro and BMP, we just use the regular B-type uh, BMP. So, uh, yeah, they had to have basically, so some, in addition to physical e- exam findings or imaging findings, they also had to have these elevated P- BMPs to help kind of assist, assess the diagnosis of fluid overload, basically. In addition, uh, they had to be on at least uh, the dose equivalent of 40 milligrams of furosemide, and I was gratified to see, because I get this question all the time, you know, what's the equivalent of the other loop diuretics? There's one milligram of bumetanide equals 20 milligrams of torsemide equals 40 milligrams of furosemide. That's the That's the conversion I learned many, many years ago and still use, you know, uh, not infrequently as well today. So I had to be on that equivalent for at least one month prior to randomization. Um, And then as as again, they had to have imaging if they did suspect uh, pleural effusion or ascites. There is a number of exclusion criteria, and I think we might take up the whole time if we were to just go through every single one of them. So I wanted to hit the high points. Uh, you could not be on an SGL2 inhibitor if you were on if you're in this trial, probably um, because again, there's you know th- that's also a proximal tubular diuretic, and one would you know that may actually enhance the diuresis of with, with acetazolamide or with loop diuretics. And the way the time period the study went on, when the study got started, SGL2 drugs weren't approved for heart failure. Now they are, of course, and they do we know they do enhance diuresis. So I think it was done uh, for safety, but also to make sure that there wasn't an imbalance in the patients who received uh, SCL2 drugs between placebo and acetazolamide. If your systolic blood pressure was less than 90, if you had an EGFR of less than 20 mils per minute, those were all exclusion criteria. The other thing that I think does kind of limit the generalizability of the study is another key exclusion criteria was using intravenous loop diuretics at a dose of more than 80 milligrams of furosemide or equivalent during the index hospitalization. So basically, if, if, if out of the gate you required higher than normal doses, blue diuretics, you were not allowed to be in the study. Now, you know, again, in my world, that, that isn't that big of a deal. Most patients seem to respond pretty decently to regular doses of diuretics. Uh, I think the, the group that I see requiring higher and higher doses are either morbidly obese patients or patients who have chronic kidney disease because um, that S shaped curve, that sigmoid curve we know is that as your EGFR goes down, that S shaped curve of diuretic greases uh, gets shifted to the right. And you Kind of do require higher doses to achieve a significant diuresis. So, a possible generalizing limit limitation there, I think, is that is that these people were mostly people who responded to standard doses of diuretics, and then they were then assigned in a one to one ratio to receive an intravenous bolus of acetazolamide, 500 milligrams once daily, or a matching placebo administered immediately after randomization and then daily for the next two days until either they had complete decongestion, which will which we'll talk about what that was defined as, um, um, or just again for the three days. So. Um, Uh, At randomization, oral loop diuretics were stopped, and the patient also received an intravenous loop diuretic at double the oral maintenance dose administered as a single bolus immediately after randomization and split into two doses separated by at least six hours on each of the next two days. So basically, if you were were in the study, you either got uh, a, a split dose of intravenous loop diuretics plus placebo or a split dose of loop diuretics anacetazolamide, basically, and you got that daily for for, for three days, basically. They also, uh, uh, since one of the the side effects of of combination would be uh, hypomagnesemia, they gave kind of prophylactic uh, uh, magnesium, three grams magnesium, administered over a period of 24 hours until the end of the treatment phase of the study. So again, that might make things a little more challenging uh, to remember to do that. And I suspect in the real world, probably we would just monitor uh, magnesiums and if they were low, just replete them as bolus doses. Um, They did recommend, though they didn't require that physicians leave the doses of everything else to treat their heart failure, so ACE inhibitors, uh, ARBs, uh, Entresto, beta blockers, things like that would all stay at the same dose during the treatment phase, but again, they didn't require that. Um, And and then after the study was done, they did strongly recommend that patients be put on goal-directed therapy as as according to the European Society of Cardiology Guidelines. So the diuretic protocol, how it worked is they they started a timed urine collection after the bladder had been emptied the first time, that was coincided with the first bolus of loop diuretics, and then basically just uh, you know collected urine um, up to about forty-eight hours after that. And if the cumulative urine output over that period was less than three point five liters, and they still had signs of fluid overload, they had a standardized protocol for escalation of decongested de- decongestant treatment. Um, and at the same time of enrollment and daily after, they calculated a congestion score. I had never heard of this before. It's I don't know if it's been validated in other studies, but it was a pretty simple scale. as a scale of zero to 10, and basically, it divided up into three things. You had a scale of zero to four for edema, zero to three if you had a pleural effusion, and zero to three for ascites. And basically, uh, the higher the number, the worse your scores for all three of those subscores, and that added up to 10, basically. So you could have a maximum of 10 and a minimum of zero, which meant you basically had no, no signs of a fluid overload at all. This was calculated uh, every day by a cardiologist who was experienced in, 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 in doing this uh, assessment. The primary endpoint of the study was, again, successful decongestion. I have to kind of keep uh, using that that term which again doesn't mean in my world what it what I think it means in the study which was defined as the absence of signs of fluid overload so they had to have a at most trace edema in their in their legs uh, no residual pleural effusion uh, which was interesting because again I in my world a lot of times it's hard to get rid of all the pleural effusion without tapping them um, or no residual ascites so again they they wanted fairly aggressive diuresis to get rid of as much fluid as they possibly can and then they also looked at this congestion score at three days to see if that was also done so so the, the, the study itself actually has a, a fairly good chart that kind of shows you their diuretic protocol. And again, you know, in the placebo arm, they just got two times their home dose IV on day one, and then that was split every six hours on day two. And then if that didn't work uh, at, by about 48 hours, they could escalate therapy, which meant doubling the loop diuretic dose and that always surprises my physicians when I tell them the single highest dose of furosemide you can give it one time is 240 milligrams. I rarely have physicians who uh, feel good to do that, and so we end up yeah, putting them on bumetanide, you know, at the same you know equivalent dose, but because the number is lower, it just sounds better. <laughs> um, you can add, they added chlorothalidone 50 a day. Again, that's a thiazide diuretic. We don't tend to do that in the U.S. We tend to use metolazone, but they're all thiazide diuretics, and you can get a, a pretty significant synergy with that, and then. Finally, if that doesn't work, ultrafiltration or renal replacement therapy, because as you know, that is one of the potential indications for acute dialysis is, is refractory fluid overload, basically. So that was basically the, the, the treatment protocol that they had going on. So it was, it was pretty standardized, in my opinion. They did look at adverse effects um, that included you know, renal events, the development of metabolic acidosis hypokalemia and hypotension as well as some other things. They define severe metabolic acidosis as a serum bicarb of less than 12. And again, you know, I've seen this happen a couple of times too when we started in my ICU where we've started uh, acetazolamide and kind of walked away and they got it every day. Uh, you can flip these people from a metabolic alkalosis to an acidosis. So I've definitely seen that. So I'm glad they took a look at that. They also looked at the the incidence of acute kidney injury, which was had the kind of the standardized uh, um, definition of a decrease of at least 50% in estimated GFR or the receipt of, of new onset renal re- replacement therapy. The statistics I think were really well done in the study. Uh, they note that there really hasn't been a lot of trials in this. So they had no real way from large clinical studies to go off of to try and estimate the power they would need. So they just kind of kind of shot, you know, f- for something I think reasonable but not too conservative. They assumed that that if 25% of patients in the C group would have successful decongestion compared to the placebo arm, that, that would everyone would agree that's a clear clinical clinical benefit. And that would be Uh, about 20 uh, absolute reduction of 10 percentage points in in absolute decongestion compared to placebo. So based on that, they estimated they needed about 519 patients in the study to do that. Um, They used the linear mixed effects model. because You're going to want to account for different, you know, levels of heart failure, different EFs, how fluid overloaded were they in when they came in, and all that sort of stuff as well. So I thought that was pretty well done. As far as baseline characteristics of the study and their outcomes, we're going to talk about all that right after we hear from our sponsor, C impact. Make sure your pharmacy is staffed up to offer vaccines. If your pharmacists and technicians need immunization administration training, be sure to check out the CE Impact virtual training course. Our training offers virtual classes several times a month, so it's easy to fit into your busy pharmacy schedule. No travel required. Check out the show notes for more details along with a discount code. So we're back here talking a little bit about, about uh, the ADVOR study, which I thought was cool. Um, you know, again, in my world, I do see a, a lot of uh, admissions for heart failure, and was and, and so this study really did pique my interest, and, and again, it's kind of hot off the press. So as you mentioned, these patients were getting acetazolamide in addition to the loop diuretic. So what did they find as far as their outcomes? Well, again, the primary outcome, again, was successful complete decongestion within three days after randomization, and that was found in 42.2% of the acetazolamide group Group compared to only 30% of patients in the placebo group with a relative risk ratio of 1.46 and a p-value of less than 0. 0.01. So they absolutely found about a 12% increase. So they actually, their power calculations were almost right on the mark. Uh, they actually found a 12% increase in the patients who had successful decongestion at three days after randomization. So that was reached statistical significance. As far as their secondary outpoints, duration of hospital stay was about a day shorter in the acetazolamide group. That also reached statistical significance. So again, you know, as I've always said, t- to my residents my students you know aggressively diuresing these patients means we can get them home quicker um death from any cause during uh, or re for heart failure during three months of follow-up actually did not reach statistical significance it was 27.8 percent of patients in placebo versus 29 percent in the Cetazolamide group um when they took took a look at uh, patients who uh, had to have escalation of therapy so they just took out the patients who didn't resp- respond to standard loop diuretics but uh, had to get escalated even in that group they found that the group re- uh, successfully congestion, 45% of patients compared to only 33% of patients in the placebo arm. So again, reaching statistical significance. Basically, most of the other uh, outcomes were not statistically significant. However, one signal that makes me a little bit nervous is death from any cause at three months was one of the exploratory analysis outcomes. And it was 12% in the placebo arm versus 15% in the um, acetosol my group. Now, again, that did not reach statistical significance because the numbers are really low. But there is this signal that does make me I have to admit, pause a little bit, not saying I wouldn't do this, but, um, you know, it does make me pause just a titch. that was that just due to the play of chance, or, you know, is there an actual signal for harm in, in the acetazolamide my group, and again, it's going to be hard to do that, uh, look at that with this analysis and do that. As far as actual adverse events, remember that they were looking at things like uh, acute kidney injury, which they found in two patients in the acetozole group versus none in the placebo group, and that didn't reach statistical significance, as you might imagine. Uh, as far as, um, it, uh, that was driven largely by 50% sustained. decrease in estimated GFR. The metabolic acidosis surprisingly did not occur in either group, which I thought was interesting. Uh, Hypokalemia and hypotension was more common in the uh, acetazolamide arm by about two percentage points, about 5% versus 4% or 5% versus 3% for both of those. And during three-month follow-up, there was actually no difference in in, in adverse effects. So again, you know, what they basically found in this study was that, yeah, they got about a 12% increase in patients who who, uh, successfully diureses. uh, and had a successful complete decongestion at, 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 uh, at three uh, days in the in the my arm compared to the placebo arm. These patients, you know, again are patients that I see all the time. Uh, average age was 78 years old. The majority were white and male. That congestion score of one to ten, and they were smack dab in the middle. And almost all of it was due due to, to peripheral edema. They were all on about the same dose of, of home diuretics. Uh, the mean uh, left ventricular ejection fraction was was 43. So it tells me that the majority of these patients had diastolic heart failure or HEF-PEF, that's what we're calling it. But when you take a look at NY, at New York Heart Association classification, uh, really about 80% of these patients were either stage three or four. So these were these were advanced heart failure patients, whether they were HEF-PEF or HEF-REF patients. And they uh, were treated, uh, you know, about what I would see in, I think, in my patients as far as background treatment. Well, nobody was on uh, Intresto, unfortunately. Uh, the majority of patients uh, were on ACEs or ARBs, uh, 80% of patients were were on beta blockers, about 40% of patients were on mineral corticoid receptor antagonists. They were all, of course, on loop diuretics as well. So, you know, again, I mean, pretty similar to the patients that that I would see, yet still found this kind of 12 to 14% uh, uh, increase in, in diuresis, uh, what they found. So, the, so the, the authors basically say that they felt like the study was the first large randomized control trial data to really show that the addition of acetazolamide seems to, to give you an additive benefit in diuresis and didn't have a ton of side effects any more than I think anyone would really when you're really aggressively diuresing patients. Uh, they note that again, the, the population was mostly male and white, which and from Belgium, because that's where the study was done. And that may limit the generalizability. Um, as I said before, I think one of the things that, that to me kind of limits the generalizability is that if you required high doses of, of diuretics at baseline, you were not allowed in the study. Uh, again, I think that might limit the generalization as well. Um, and, and these were patients who had had a diagnosis of heart failure for quite some time. So if somebody had new onset heart failure. Again, it's the authors note that it might be kind of hard to tell if it's going to work in those. They note that the, this congestion score was used for the assessment and, and they talk about, you know, that, you know, this, there are other people who might say, well, this isn't a, a really good way to assess that outcome. There are other ways to assess the outcome, but they felt like it was a reasonable way to do that. They do note that this exclusion of STL-2 drugs, again, was partially because of safety concerns, but also because, again, at that time, STL-2 drugs, when the study was started, were not actually approved for heart failure and not part of gold directed therapy. So they felt then they note that 5% of proximal sodium uptake is mediated by SGL2, where 60% of that is is, medi- is inhibited by acetazolamide. So that's kind of the safety issues there. So I mean, you know, again, it seems to be beneficial in patients with with low to moderate doses of IV diuretics without chronic kidney disease. Um, and, and I would have liked to seen uh, the incidence of metabolic alkalosis at baseline in both groups, um, which they unfortunately didn't say maybe that'll be a, a post hoc analysis they will do. But the bottom line was that it did uh, the addition of Cetazolamide, at least in the short term, did do what we want these drugs to do, which is to help aggressively diurese people. Yeah, yes, you're going to see an increase. Whenever you're diareseing somebody, you're going to see an increase in hypokalemia, perhaps hypotension. And there's always that risk of acute kidney injury. Those numbers were there, but but again, not significantly higher. I mean, you know, there was a little bit of a a numerical increase. Um, And so I think the the benefit outweighs the risk in, in really a lot of patients. And so this is probably something that I'm going to start recommending Ending, especially in the, in the in the heart failure patients that standard diuretics just don't seem to be working for. Um, I think that, that adding acetazolamide at this relatively low dose and only for three days uh, you know, can really give us that, that that extra diuresis that we need. Um, and maybe that's something we could use in place of things like metolazone or, or in this study, chlorthalidone. Um, that, you know, again, I've seen pretty profound electrolyte abnormalities when we use that combination. So that may, may, may be something going on as well. So bottom line, acetazolamide uh, it does seem to give you a benefit in, in getting people diureased and getting them out of hospital, saving a day's hospitalization. Um, there's again the signal of, of increased mortality at three months, but I, but again, play of chance versus an actual signal, I think is kind of up in the air, and probably won't dampen my enthusiasm to, to give this a shot. So that's it for this week's uh, game changers. Thanks for listening to us. I do want to do a little bit of, of self promotion here. Um, uh, as many of you know, I do produce electronic music under the name Prophet of Jupiter, and I was fortunate enough to have a uh, Ola Kay, actually, uh, who's a producer and remixer, remixed one of my songs and is a- actually uh, uh, now being released. Uh, uh, just I think today, actually, on uh, Late Night Munchies recordings. You can take a look at that at Beatport and SoundCloud under Profit of Jupiter. Take a look and see what you think. Uh, I thought she did a really good job with my re- with the remix. So uh, thanks for thanks for her for that. We will see you guys next week. But until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care. Don't forget to claim your CE for today's episode. And while you're in the show notes, check out the link to Dr. Wall's new music release. Please subscribe for all episodes and tune in next week for another clinical practice game changer.